Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Wow, buddy! You look healthy and happy. Veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. That's why he developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Hmm. Maybe I should try some of your pet food myself. Okay, okay. I'll start with a salad. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's some of the most famous crime movies of all time and have left gangsters and their glamorous malls forever embedded in popular culture. Now Crime World is going to make you an offer you can't refuse. In association with Dingle Whiskey and the Sunday World magazine, we'll be recording an exclusive invite-only live show on December 1st in Dublin's Sugar Club. And for a chance to win tickets, all we want are your views and your votes. Over the coming weeks, we will be reviewing our top 10 iconic movies with some special guests as part of the Dingle Whiskey Movie Club on Crime World. And we want you to vote for your favourites to be in to win. Details on sundayworld.com and Crime World's Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And remember, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Right in the middle of Main Street Castle Race, what she described was seeing a man kneeling, holding a gun and firing a number of shots, she wasn't sure how many, into a, another person who was, who was lying on the ground. He seems to have encountered Stephen Silver. There was an exchange between them, and as a result of that, Gerda Horkin suffered 11 gunshot wounds, um, and he died at the same time. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld, in Ireland and across the globe. A trial at the Central Criminal Court has been hearing evidence of events around the death of a detective Garda who was shot dead with his own weapon after he responded to a call. Motorbike mechanic Stephen Silver has denied murdering Detective Garda Colm Horkin but pleaded guilty to manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. Today, I'm talking with Court's reporter Owen Reynolds about the trial and the evidence that has been heard before a jury about the tragic events of a night in Castlereagh, County Roscommon. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Oh, and in normal circumstances, this trial, I think, would be absolutely top of the news and front pages every day. It is quite a rarity that we have a, a Garda killed on duty and that we have a trial as a uh, result of that. But given what's going on with the Regency upstairs, um, 
it sort of hasn't had as much publicity as it either deserves or warrants. But so we thought we'd just give a rundown on what's been happening. Now, Stephen Silver is in the dock. He's accused of the murder of is a detective guard at Colm Horkin. Um, yeah, he was. Ago. Yeah, he's being referred to as Detective Garda Horkin. Um, he hadn't he he hadn't fully achieved that promotion at the time that this happened, but he was doing the duties of a detective at that stage. He'd been given permission or he'd been given authority to work as a detective by his uh, by senior guardie. And um, just remind us what happened then. It was June of uh, June of twenty twenty. Yeah, I mean the, the the short version is that um, he responded that evening to a call in the Knockrow area of Castlereagh that there had been somebody uh, driving a motorbike, you know, dangerously without helmets, without lights. Um, so he drove out to that estate in his unmarked Hyundai car. Um, he was plain clothes. Uh, he went into the estate. By the time he got there, there was nothing happening. It was all quiet. He left the estate. And as he was leaving, he seems to have encountered Stephen Silver and another man, uh, James Coyne, who were walking on the main street in Castlereagh, heading towards the local Apache Pizza. Um, now, there was an exchange. We can go more in depth into it. But just like I say, the short version is that there was an exchange between them. And as a result of that, Gerda Horkin suffered 11 gunshot wounds um, and he died at the scene. Mm. And just to point out, I suppose, for listeners that this case is before a jury. So we have to be very careful to stick to exactly what has, um, you know, been given in evidence. And we won't be doing any commentary as we go along in the way we have with other cases. Which Yeah, are so we've before talked before special, about yeah. special criminal court cases where... It's a little bit more open because the judges in those cases uh, consider themselves beyond being prejudiced or they are. influenced. They can't be influenced by us. <laughs> by us, whereas jury maybe might be more susceptible to media influence. So yeah, we're good. we will be very careful to make yeah. sure that we don't provide any commentary. We're just going commentary. to literally stick to what has already been before the courts and where the case is at at this stage. Now, I just popped in briefly yesterday uh, to have a look and... Um, Silver is a long-haired man. He's sitting there in the dock. He's taking notes. He seems to be listening very intently to the ca- the case. True. So what have you heard so far? Um, well, there's been quite a lot of evidence, both from people who uh, witnessed or heard what was what happened when the shooting started, um, from people who were neighbours of uh, James Coyne, who saw the initial kind of... Uh, dangerous driving on the motorbike and so on. We've heard from the Gardaí who first arrived at the scene and we've heard quite a lot from Stephen Silver himself because he gave um, quite lengthy interviews to Gardaí uh, in the two days immediately following the shooting. He was arrested at the scene and mm. he was he was interviewed at Castlewood Garda Station. So he gave, um, you know, fairly full accounts of uh, his version of, of what happened, yeah. So maybe if we start at what, like, when the emergency services or the Gardaí were called to the scene, what they saw and what they then discovered. We go back after that, but if we start with that, because they must have been maybe colleagues of Detective Garda Horkin. They were, and and, and almost, I think, to a man, every Garda who arrived at the scene knew Garda Colm Horkin. Um, uh, He had been working as a guard for 25 years at that stage. Now, the first people on the scene were actually two Garda, Helen Gillen and Aidan Fallon. They were, they really witnessed exactly what happened because they were also responding to that call in Knock Row and they had gone into Knock Row to see if they could find this person on the motorbike. Arrived, again, they saw nothing, everything was quiet and they were leaving 
And as they were leaving, they saw part of this exchange between uh, Stephen Silver and Gerda Colum Hawken, where uh, what they what they described it as was grappling at the side of the road. Now they didn't recognise Colum Hawken. Um, they they, uh, they all they. Aidan Fallon said it looked like something you'd see outside a nightclub on a Saturday night, two lads going at each other. But as they they continued on, um, they heard the gunshots, the first gunshots. And Garda Fallon, who was driving, he said he turned the car in the road to block off any traffic coming towards it. And Helen Gillen was able to see out through the window. And she's what she described was seeing a man kneeling, holding a gun and firing a number of shots, she wasn't sure how many, into a, another person who was who was lying on the ground. At that point, again, at this stage even, neither of them knew that it was Garda Colin Hawken. Who they were no, it would have been, oh, it was midnight nearly, or thereabouts, it would have been dark. Was there street lights? Was it a kind of bright part of the, the village or was it that country dark? No, it's right in the middle of Main Street, Castlereagh. So it's at the junction of Main Street and Patrick Street. Um, uh, there's a Gallons Travel it's right in front of that. People in the area would probably be familiar with it. So it would have been quite a well-lit area, but extremely quiet. This was in the middle of lockdown. The only thing locally that appears to have been open at that time, you know, coming up to midnight at that time, was an, an Apache pizza. And that's where Stephen Silver and his friend James Coyne were on their way to. So there was nobody really about? Nobody really about. Uh, the couple, the, the neighbours or the people living on Main Street who have given evidence, most of them said at that point they were they were in bed, they were asleep or they were heading heading to bed. Mm. Um, and yet the street seems to have been deserted uh, other than the Gardaí and Stephen Silver and James Coyne. So what happened? Did they, did they get out of the car and try and intervene or did they call for backup? So... They, as I said, they pulled the car around to cover the road. They got out of the car. They um, immediately, Helen Gillen radioed for help. She, she, she said that there were uh, shots had been fired in Main Street Castlereagh. They got out of the car. They approached this man that, again, they, at this stage, they didn't know who he was, Stephen Silver, as it turned out. And uh, Helen Gillen said that she saw Stephen Silver throw the gun away, mm. and it was found kind of near the wheel of the Hyundai, Hyundai, uh, Colin Hawkins Hyundai. So Helen Gillen approached, Aidan Fallon approached, they told this man to get down on his knees or to get down on the ground and he did get down on the ground. He then got up on his knees and he said something to the effect of, you know, that man attacked me, I was defending myself. They asked him to uh, put his hands behind his back, which Helen Gillen said he refused to do, but he did put his hands to the front and he allowed them to handcuff him. Uh, so they put the handcuffs on him and then they told him to move over to the curb. And then the two guard, the, uh, Aiden Fallon, went over to the person lying on the ground and he said he turned the person over, saw the face and realised who it was that he was yes. looking at, that it was Colin Hawken. So they attempted to do uh, CPR, but it would appear that his injuries, according to the pathologist who gave evidence, Dr. Linda Mulligan, his injuries were catastrophic and not survivable. There was, Did, was there evidence given, and maybe you can't answer this, either firstly, were those two officers armed, or secondly, when they started to approach Stephen Silver, and he's obviously about to throw the gun, but he presumably still has it when they get out of the car initially. I, were they able to draw their weapons, or did they have any? They didn't have any guns. These aren't. These wouldn't be members of the armed support unit. Um, they would have had just the ordinary guard of baton, that kind of thing. But I think actually the evidence of Helen Gillen was that maybe even before she had gotten out of the car, he had already thrown the gun away. Or, or certainly what she said was that she wasn't afraid to approach because she had seen him throw the gun away. And where's uh, James Coyne at this stage? Well, James Coyne was there. He, 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 when he was giving evidence, he said that he went over to 
Gannon's shop. I think he hid in the doorway there and he went around the corner and he hid. And then when, when he heard all the shots and the firing and pretty shortly after that, he said he ran away, went back home, back mm-hmm. to Knock Row. So at this point, the he's restrained, he's handcuffed. Was there evidence given about his demeanour? Um, <clears throat> his demeanour over the next few hours actually has formed a, a large part of the evidence. Uh, he's been described as being very agitated. Um, he uh, told Gardy he was very unhappy that he had been attacked on his main st- on the main street of his town uh, for no reason. He said that uh, he didn't know who this person was who approached him. Um, he said he didn't. He said that. Colin Hawken didn't show him any ID, and although he did identify himself as a Garda, he said he didn't, he couldn't believe that. He 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 just saw a Tommy Hilfiger jacket and an unmarked saloon car, like a family type car. He said he had no way of knowing if this person was really a Garda. He didn't believe it was a Garda, mm-hmm. and he said when he saw the gun in a holster on the person's hip, um, he thought he had to get that, uh, get hold of that gun, and he said that's what they grappled over, they fought over, and he and the. Uh, as they fought over the gun, he said, it discharged. And he said at one point that Garda Horkin shot himself. Um, um, but he did also say that at one point he stood up over him and shot him uh, to ensure that he didn't get back up. Now, um, Because he felt that this person was attacking him, that he was a danger to him. Is he Detective Inspector now, Brian Hanley? I think he's... Moved he's an inspector. Ranks. Yeah, he's an inspector. Brian. He's an inspector now. Okay. Detective inspector now. I think at the time he was sergeant. Um, sergeant. So he's working for the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation. He yeah. at some point is called in to help with the questioning of Silver, yeah. along with a colleague. And certainly for the little bit I was there, we're watching the videos of that. Yeah, so the videos went on for quite a long time. They just finished them yesterday, which was day 13 of the evidence. So in those videos, in the first few interviews, um, Stephen Silver, I don't think it would be too much commentary to say that he was very talkative. He he spoke a lot about what happened, describing how he felt that he had been attacked, that uh, he wasn't doing anything wrong, um, that he uh, he felt um, that there was something wrong with the idea that Gardaí are going around attacking people on the streets holding guns. Um, So he was very... Um, animated about that, very angry about that fact that this had happened to him on the main street in Castlereagh. Um, he said that this is the kind of thing he would expect to happen in America, not in Castlereagh. Um, so uh, as those interviews went on, um, I think in his fourth interview, he did five in total. In his fourth interview, his solicitor entered the room with him, a man by the name of Garod Garrity, and Garod Garrity advised him not to speak anymore, that he had given an account of what happened and he shouldn't speak anymore. And from then on, the interviews tended to be much more of the Gardaí speaking mm. and Stephen either not responding at all or giving very short, terse responses. So, but prior to this, obviously, he had come in and this, you know, when you say in the first interviews, he's very talkative. They had actually, the Gardaí had, I think it was heard in evidence, had him assessed to make sure that he was in sort of a mental state, I suppose, to give the interview. Yeah, so I think it's a typical thing when somebody is arrested now that at the very least a GP will come and decide whether or not the person is fit to be interviewed. It's very common anyway in, in, mur- in murder trials, you hear that happening. So in this case, a local GP did come along and assessed him and found that he was fit to be interviewed, but said that somebody, uh, you know, with a, a background in psych- psychiatry should do a more formal assessment. And he recommended... Um, 
uh, he actually contacted the central mental hospital to get somebody from there to assess him because he said they're the professionals in these cases where people with mental health issues come across, uh, you know, end up in a guard station. That mm. the central mental hospital is often the place where they end up. Uh, so he felt that they were the best people maybe to take care of this. And he also found that the behaviour that he saw displayed by Stephen Silver was the kind of thing that you'd often see in people with in the manic phase of bipolar uh, disorder. Uh, so that was that also fed into his thinking that a psychiatrist should be involved here. He did say that he also uh, gave him a small amount of a antipsychotic drug called Seroquel. Uh, he gave him 50 milligrams of that. Now, to calm him down. To calm him down. Um, yeah, essentially to calm him down because I think the, the therapeutic dose for a psychotic episode of Seroquel would be much higher than that, something like six to eight times that amount. So it this would just be the kind of person. And was evidence heard at all that Silver gave the doctor any history of his own his own medical history? Had he given, had he told him that he had suffered bipolar? Yeah, he had said on a number of occasions, both to the guardie and to this man that he suffered from, to the doctor that he suffered from bipolar disorder. And that wasn't the only medical professional who saw him um, around that time. At about nine o'clock that morning, so we're about nine hours after mm-hmm. Mr. Silver had been arrested, um, a consultant psychiatrist named uh, Dr. Will Montero came to the station to assess him. Now, he wasn't able to do an interview with uh, Stephen Silver because the because he refused to be interviewed. Um, but he stood at the cell door, watched him through a hatch for a couple of minutes, asked him a couple of questions, and he pretty quickly, within minutes in fact, formed the opinion that he was fit to be interviewed. And he said uh, in his evidence, Dr. Will Montero said that he didn't see any signs of acute mental illness. He said that his speech patterns, his behaviour were all within normal param- parameters, that um, he was able to listen to things that were being said, say, by the sergeant in charge at the station. He was able to listen to those things, uh, take on board what was said and respond in a way that was, you know, appropriate to what mm. was being said and appropriate to the situation. So in his opinion, um, on the short assessment, and he did accept that it was an incomplete assessment, but he said on that incomplete assessment, he found no evidence that there was acute mental, mental uh, uh, um an acute mental health problem there. It's like technical question and maybe this hasn't been handled in evidence or maybe it has. But when somebody is arrested, the clock begins and uh, these medical professionals are sort of arriving in the middle of the questioning or before the guardian can question an individual. Was there any kind of anyone challenging that or was anyone speaking about that as regards the, the clock ticking? I think... I think w- w- by the time they actually sat down to do interviews with him, it was it was coming up to noon that day. So he had been in custody for quite a long time. And under the act under which he was arrested, they had a 48 hours, really, yeah. uh, essentially. And, um, you know, th- they had initially 24. And I think that they, they probably knew that they would be able to get that extended to 48 hours. Um, so, yeah, the clock was ticking at that stage and it did become, by the time they actually got around to start doing the interviews, it had become kind of imperative that they get going. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because in, a, in an investigation, um, I think when that, that guardie have to put to a suspect anything that they may use as evidence against them in court. Well, yeah, as, if there's information that they, that they have at that point, I yeah. mean, obviously things can come to light later on that they couldn't possibly put to them in that 48 hours. But if they have information, they are expected to put it to the person to give them an opportunity to respond to that mm-hmm. at that stage. And it can become an issue in trial. If they haven't put something to them that they should have put to them, they might not be able to put that forward in evidence. Yeah. 
So the background, I presume, investigators in the background were trying to work out what had happened in the run up to this moment that um, Stephen Silver and Detective Garda Horkin sort of meet. Um, and, you know, the fatal end to, to Garda Horkin's life. But what was heard about the run up to this sort of maybe the 24 hours before it? What was happening in Stephen Silver's life? Right. So he had been spending some time with an Australian woman. We haven't really heard anything more about her other than that he had been with her. He drove to Dublin with her. She was heading back to Australia. I think they stayed in a hotel near the airport. And then he, on the same day that all this happened, he drove back from Dublin to Castlereagh. He met, when he arrived in Castlereagh, he drove um, to a car park where he met a bus driver friend of his. In fact, he pulled up in his van alongside the bus. The bus driver was taking his break. They spoke and the bus driver gave evidence. He said that he showed Stephen Silver something on his mobile phone, which was a video of Gardaí raiding uh, James Coyne's house a few weeks previously. And this witness said that they both agreed that what had happened to James Coyne was a bit over the top. Um, so Stephen Silver decided as a result of that that he was going to go and see James Coyne. Uh, he hadn't seen him for a number of years, but he decided he would this day. So he went, he drove to James Coyne's house. They embraced, um, you know, according to James Coyne, they had had a falling out years earlier, but he said they kind of made up at that point. And that's when we've said, like, they travelled from Knockrowe to a ward where uh, Stephen Silver has his motorbike mechanic shop, a repair shop. Um, he gave James Coyne this Kawasaki motorbike. They put it in the back of, of Stephen Silver's van and they drove back to Knock Row. And there was that kind of disturbance with mm. the spinning around on the Kawasaki. They were mm. taking a go around the estate. Uh, there was, I think, Stephen Silver did a few, uh, a burnout, as it's called, you know, spinning on the back wheel. Um, and that's what caused the neighbours to call the Gardaí, which was what drew uh, Garda Helen Gillen, Aidan mm. Fallon, and Colin Hawken to that area at that time. Um, so, was there evidence heard that he gave Coin this bike? Yes, he did. He 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 told James Coin, "You're a natural on that. It's yours. You can have it." And James Coin said that uh, when when he said that to him, he said, "Well, I'm going to make sure that I get the bike properly." So he ensured that he got the you know the change of ownership form, and Stephen Silver signed it, and so on. And so no money changed. No money exchange. It was given as gift. Okay. Yeah. So they. Um, that was uh, what was said in relation to that, and we can't speculate on anything else that was going on during that day or anything. But no, I think that's. I mean, I suppose I've given a, a quick overview, but that's pretty much every, the things that happened in the lead up to it. Uh, no, sorry, there was one other incident. Um, but when they were driving from Knock Row to Castlereagh, they stopped at Castlereagh Garda Station, and Stephen Silver went inside, and there was a Garda who was on duty in the station at that time. He said that Stephen Silver was complaining; he was quite angry, irate about. Uh, that Gardy had been abusing an elderly man. And he said that he had evidence of his mobile phone and he was going to take it to the media. And he, he left and the Garda checked the rage of the van that he saw him in and he traced it back and he saw that this belonged to a man named Stephen Silver. And uh, he checked with other Gardaí who were on duty at the time to see if any of them had an interaction with an elderly person that day to find out what, what he had been talking about. But he couldn't find it. He couldn't find figure out what what that was about. So have the jury been or has it been put to the court at all? Is this part of the state's case, this in interaction the, with the Guardi? In the opening, Michael Delaney, who's the senior counsel for the prosecution, said that one of the things that the jury will have to consider is whether or not he was ill-disposed, Stephen Silver was ill-disposed towards Guardi on the day and that that may have been a, a factor in mm -hmm. what happened, yeah. And 
Stephen Silver is charged with murder. So just explain what's going on here. He's pleaded guilty to manslaughter in some fashion. He's charged with uh, a specific type of murder, which, you know, used to be called capital murder. We don't have capital murder in this country anymore. Since so when? Well, oh, at least since 1990, I think. Really? Um, but yeah, this was explained to me by a law lecturer when I previously incorrectly wrote uh, about a capital, what I call the capital murder. Yeah. Capital crimes are crimes for which the penalty uh, can be death. 40 years, wasn't it? Oh, it can be death. Yes, right. so once we abolish the death penalty, we abolish capital crimes. I see. That's what the law lecturer in Galway told me anyway. Um, I so he's right. <laughs> I presume he's right. So um, what he's charged with is the murder of a member of Angarda Siakana acting in accordance with his duty, and that is um, Section 3 of the Criminal Justice Act. Now, um, we won't go into what the ramifications are that of that, um, but just for the prosecution's point of view, that means that they have to prove that Stephen Silver not only committed the murder and that he had the intent to kill when he did so, but also that he knew that the person he was killing was a member of Angarda Shikana, or that at least he was reckless as to whether or not he was a member of Angarda Shikana. So that's that that differs makes it differ slightly from an ordinary murder trial. There's just that extra element on top of it. Now he has pleaded guilty to an offence, but he's pleaded not guilty to the murder. Um, he's pleaded guilty to manslaughter, and the, the basis upon which he's done that is for diminished responsibility due to his mental health issues. Now we haven't heard strong. We haven't really heard the evidence in relation to that yet. As I say, it's now day 14 of the trial. I expect we will over the next few days, but I can't speculate what that's going to be. The prosecution case seems to be wrapping up. There's maybe one or two other witnesses to be heard. Exactly, yeah. So we're expecting the prosecution case to end pretty soon, and then it will be up to the defence to start calling witnesses, and we'll be into a a new phase of the trial then. And just finally, I suppose, um, it's a busy courtroom. There is Obviously, this is the jury, and there seems to be quite a heavy presence of people from um, Garda Horkin's family who are there. Are they there every day? Yes, every day, a very large group of people, probably something in the order of 15 to 20 people are there uh, on a regular basis for Garda Horkin. There's also members of Mr. Silver's family have been attending the trial regularly. Uh, so, yeah, it is a pretty busy courtroom. There are a number of Gardaí, obviously, as there always are whenever there's a, a murder trial because they, there are a lot of exhibits and things and, uh, you know, things that they need to take care of. But I presume there's also maybe more of a personal interest because it is a colleague too. Yeah, OK. Well, we'll definitely come back to it when it concludes... Um, and obviously for the other half of this trial, which will be the defence case um, as it comes up over the next week. So, Owen Reynolds, thank you very much. Thank you, Eglin. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.